Thank you so much, Elder Wing, for leading us in our service. And uh, that's a tall order that I can tell you how to stop sin. But uh, after reading Nehemiah, that portion, I think we'll start a new ministry here. It's called, uh, we'll get the pastors and the leaders to stand at two doors. It's called the Pulling Hair Ministry. And that may help. So as we end our sermon today, uh, uh, sermon today on this series, did you notice something very different? What a, week, uh, what a difference a week makes. Last week, this was completely full, and people were trying to get in. This week, is half empty. The other half, I'm Malaysia, by the way. So it shows you the pent-up demand for holidays. No more staycations, now vacation. So you're well and truly the remnant. Well and truly. Okay. Here we go again. Life sometimes is, uh, life a lot of times is full of repetitions. And we need repetitions and routine for orderliness in life. If you want this orderliness in life, you should go and live in a war-torn country or a country struck by crisis, natural disasters, um, man-made disasters. Some are repetitions are um, light-hearted. And so, I do not know where I noticed rightly, but uh, during COVID-19, lots of us started to take our health seriously. And lots of people, beginning with some of our staff, they really became uh, healthy, lost weight, gained muscles, right? But do I see rightly across the board now that some of you have put on a lot of weight recently? And so there we go. The holidays have started, the vacation has started, the eating has started, the eating non-stop has started, and then the dieting and the gyms will go up. And life repeats. You thought you would keep this weight, you never kept this weight. But sometimes they are set and serious repetitions. And set and serious repetitions, I spoke about that last week. There's another mass shooting in Texas. And 21 people died. 19 of them students, two teachers. And one of the girls who survived was an 11-year-old called Mia Cirillo. And she managed to inch up and hide and managed to get a phone and text and her message was very simple, if I un read it correctly. Please help, dot, 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 we are in trouble. She texts that, and it usually takes, I don't know, three to five minutes before you get help. It didn't come. And when the help finally came, 21 people were dead. Mia Cirillo will suffer the trauma for the rest of her life. She started to lose huge chunks of hair. She's going through counselling. And of course, this mass shooting will start another round of what? Another round of discussions in America and indeed around the world about the folly of gun laws. Why will the Americans never change this? So I was speaking to some of, on the team, the Gettys team, who are Americans. It's deep and complex between their rights, their freedom, and the rights and freedom, and the care and safety of others. And in one sense, they said, this thing will never be solved. Here we go again. Every time there's a mass shooting, there's national uh, sorrow about this, there's national discussion about this, we discuss this and nothing changes. Is that the same for us? In our lives? Whenever we sin, there are spontaneous moments of confession, if there are. There are spontaneous moments of repentance, and before you know it, when life gets better and settles, and settles in some way, we drop the guard against God and against others and repeat the cycle of sin in thought and word and deed. We fail to love God and we fail to love others and we are desensitized to them. And so as we come to a final sermon, we must indeed summarize what has happened. Okay, so first slide comes on. In chapter 1, Nehemiah weeps. Why do you cry for anything? He cries and he weeps as he hears of the spiritual condition of God's city, that though Betches earlier than him had returned, the city walls lies in ruins. And so he pleads in chapter 2 for the king, for him to be given permission to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and bring, as it were, God's city back to his glorious days. But in chapters 4 and 5, we realise that whatever God calls us to, whatever God calls us to, there will be obstacles. And He faces external opposition 
in the persons especially of Sanballat and Tobiah. And then others who would join him because they're right out there influencing others. And then he faces internal um, inertia to this, internal opposition to this, from the divisions between the richer Jews and the poorer Jews that's happening there. In chapter 6 to 7, he faces personal attacks. So I want to ask you, what is it that will stop you from doing God's work? It's always the personal attacks. And the personal attacks against him, he, he overcomes them. How? We will see an ending as we, as we summarize his life. He finishes this task in 52 miraculous days. And he sees that it's miraculous because 52 days to rebuild this wall, he can only see but the good hands of God was upon him. The repetition again and again. If the good hands of God was not upon him to fulfill God's purposes, he never would have done this. And then it leads, as it were, to the heart of this book. The reading of the book of the law. For years and years, for centuries, for decades and then centuries upon centuries, the Jews gave superficial attention to what? They live with the Bible shut. I so happen to carry still my manual Bible. It's, you see how holy this is? It's very thick. They live with the Bible shut and they thought they could, they could escape the consequences of shutting God's Word out. And when you shut God's Word out, you will shut God out from your life. From all your thinking, from all your speaking, from all your doing. And so the reading of the law as they came back from the exile, they read that and there was renewal. They made promises, they made pledges. And chapters 11 to 12, it's a listing of all the people beginning with the Levites as they returned to God. By chapter 13, this whole grand scheme of returning, rebuilding and renewal falls flat. It's as if he did this all for nothing. You put your whole heart and soul into serving God and serving God's people and it amounts to nothing. With that backdrop, chapter 13 becomes clearer. It's about renewal undone, and yet Nehemiah never gives up. It's renewal redone. He does it again. So in chapters, in verses 1 to 9, it's about the ejecting of Tobiah, the Ammonite. And did you notice how the chapter ends? It's about the ejecting of Sanballat. The two enemies frame this portion that he is not finished with them and they are not finished with him. That he faces this in 10 to 14, verses 10 to 14, is about restoring the ties for the Levites who are at the forefront of what? If you take away which professional class in Singapore can you do without? And if you do without right, this, it will not cost anything to you. You think happily, can we do without doctors? Can we do without lawyers? Can we do without engineers? Can we do without bankers? Can we do without civil servants? Can we do without... What is it you cannot do without? Israel can never do without Levites. That is the class that reminds them this is what it means to know the holy God and live holy lives in response to Him. And then it's about restoring the Sabbath. And then finally it's about restoring the social fabric of Israelite life, the distinctive things about what it means to be God's people, and it comes down to restoring marriages and families, living God's way down to the wire in every part of our life. So once you capture the whole framework of this, the return generation needs to be different to the generation that was taken into exile for shutting God out of their life for giving nominal, superficial listening and worship to God. So, this is how it began. You read this. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Obviously, this was the public reading of God's word. And as you read in chapters 8, they not just read the, the book of the law, but the Levites went out in batches to explain this and tell them this is what it means for your life as you listen to God's Word. Not simply the explanation of God's Word, but indeed the obedience to God's Word. 
and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. You've got to understand this. It's as if they never knew the Old Testament scriptures. It was totally unfamiliar to them years later after the exile. And so they read this. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, which means they did not have good intentions, right? The Ammonites and Moabites. But they hired Balaam, a false prophet, against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Let me just pause there and explore this with you. Whatever you do not know about God, as you come to this service, this Sunday, June 5th, 2022, God is a master of what? God is a master of turning the curses of your life into blessings. That is essentially one understanding of the whole Bible. That God is able to turn your curses into blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And so it was written there, and written where? That the post-exilic, the post-exilic generation were not familiar with the book of the law. It probably came from Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to 5. And in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to 5, Ammonites and Moabites were prohibited from worshipping with Israel in the temple. And this was not so much a prohibition based on racial superiority of the Israelites versus the racial inferiority of the Moabites. That's very important because maybe in some pockets around the world, we are still debating vaccine discrimination. Anything that smacks of discrimination brings out a sense of injustice. And to understand rightly, God in His Word has never embarked on racial discrimination. It's a misunderstanding. But because the Moabites and the Ammonites were political enemies, but more than that, the most dangerous thing about them was they had learned to compromise and they were very good at worshipping many idols, man-made idols, and they showed no repercussions, no negativity for worshipping idols. So it was the idolatry and the supposed blessing of the idolatry that would be infectious and contagious and fatal to Israel. Understand that? Please take that to heart. And so did you notice in portion after portion of renewal of repentance, beginning with chapter 8, is the reading of the book of the law, is the public reading and the public hearing and the private obedience to the word of God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1, chapter 8 verse 13, chapter 9 verse 3, and the reading of God's word is what alerts us to the dangers that they face. And sometimes it could be political dangers. The church of Jesus Christ across the centuries, from the Old Testament church to the New Testament church, have always faced political dangers. In the first century, it was from Rome. In the most recent centuries before this, it was communists who killed more Christians. It was militant religious folk around the world and still are persecuting and killing Christians. And so we must understand there's political enmity. And as we live in Singapore, you must never take this for granted that some issues will surface and surface socially and become a political dynamite and a political lightning rod may make the whole society turn against us. And a very real one across the world is sexuality. And that's about to explode on our shores in the next one, three, five, ten years, as exploded in the Western church. And the language is so militant in America, in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia, that you read the social chatter for Christians who believe that God made us men and women and nothing in between. Right? The language out there on social media is that we've got to get rid of this people. Get rid of Christians who hold on to this conservative view. We always have to be mindful of the fatal dangers to God's people, political enmity, and it's always mixed up with idolatry. And idolatry comes to us 
in different ways. And so it is to awaken us to the true worship of God. And it begins here, the four things they have to do. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, of course, priest over the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain and wine and all, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contribution to the priests. So let's step back to understand this that part of their renewal in coming back, they had made the promise that they will never withhold the giving to the Levites. Whatever you do not know about the Levites, God set them apart. So, as it were, they can't do the farming work, the agricultural work, the normal everyday work, because their main work was to lead Israel in the worship of God. And so, if they don't do the work that earns them money, keeps them, then they have to get it from the people of God who are out there doing the farming and out there doing the trading to bring in the tithes to feed them. And so, what did this priest do? He gave it to the arch enemy of Nehemiah. And so, he created a little space in the temple area and slowly but surely, the space became overwhelming. So, Tobiah had tones of a Jewish name, he married into a powerful family. He was Nehemiah's arch enemy. He had supporters in the higher circles. And you just need one or two corrupting influences at the highest echelons to lead us away from truth and love and unity. And the Church of Jesus Christ has always suffered that. And now that I'm moderator of a small English presbytery and then the synod, so many times, so much of our energies at that level is always putting out the fires where at leadership of churches and so hard the peacemaking the peacemaking at that level of leadership you've got to pray and it's that thing that takes the wind out of our hearts as pastors as elders as deacons don't they know better than to embark on these subtle sins here and the subtle sins there accusing each other bringing confusion and bringing division within the church of Jesus Christ, it has always happened, my friends. And so, how did Nehemiah respond? I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I ordered, gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, take note of the word, cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So lessons from this first thing that he addressed is beware of corrupting influences, of how they can worm and wriggle their way while Nehemiah was away. So he had been governor with the post-exile generation that came back for about 12 years. And then he went back to serve the king. By the time he came back, things had gone wrong Things have seeped into the leadership, and from the leadership, it started to confuse and to divide the people. His initial furniture and space in the temple finally evicted God's rightful space and fittings and furniture and provision and compromise is always like that. You and I, without God, you want to take note of yourself? If you define yourself as a sinner, the very definition of a sinner is that you are a master compromiser. The very definition of a sinner is that you are an expert compromiser of the things of God and the things of God. And when the compromise comes, it will, it will be slow, it will be subtle, you can't see that this is a compromise, you'll be spiritually blind to it, and then the slow and subtle equals to a substantial compromise. So I've given this illustration many times. We were in Bible college. I came back one day after my lectures, and Mona at the time was doing her MBA, and in MBA they used to work in, in small groups together. And she, as I walked into the house, I could, smell, I could smell something was wrong. I could smell cooking gas. 
I walked to the kitchen which in the middle of the house. It was a very old house that we lived in. And Mona and her friends were, were there working on something. I think they were working, but actually they were just drinking coffee. La, right? And so I said, don't you smell the, the, the gas? They said, no. All they could smell was the aroma of the coffee. So I walked to the cooking stove and she stood up and we looked at it. That, that pointer was just slightly out of the off position. There was a slow leak. But because I came in from fresher air outside, I could smell it. But because they were sitting there with their coffees and teas and whatever cakes, they couldn't smell it. If that went on for one or two more hours, you light, you light a match, boom, the kitchen would have gone up. Temptation, compromise, is slow, it is subtle, but in the end, it will be substantial, my friends. And so it's very important we get this right. And this is like echoes or shades and echoes and shades. And finally, when Jesus turns up at the temple in Jerusalem, en route to the cross, he cleanses the, the social, moral, spiritual decay of, of Israel, signified in the temple. He overturns the tables. And they wonder, what authority does he have to do this? And that is en route to his death on the cross where he will usher in the new temple of God, cleansed by his blood. So there is a place for this. Nehemiah's return, it is sudden, it is sanctifying, sanctifying, it is reviving. And you look at this and say, sounds a little bit harsh. Everything he does here, it is, sounds a bit harsh, but it is not. And so our great hero of the faith for us as Presbyterians, it's supposed to be John Calvin. So you know anything about John Calvin? He really took God's word seriously. He studied the scriptures in both the Hebrew and the Greek. And in reading the scriptures, he, with Martin Luther, about the same generation, knew that the Roman Catholic Church that ruled the Western world for about a thousand years was actually corrupt. And a, not a vessel of Jesus and not a vessel of Jesus, but actually a tool of the devil. And they would say that the Pope is of the devil. The Pope then was of the devil. They had no problems with this. And the number one people going to red light areas and fathering illegitimate children were actually Roman Catholic priests. And so when God raised these reformers, we look at them, they would never have called themselves reformers. They went back to the Bible Bible-centered, Christ-centered, all the things we took for granted. And in Geneva, I so happened to be there one year, 20, 20 plus years ago. You ask the people of Geneva today, they will still have two views. You either love Calvin or you hate Calvin. For Calvin not just preached the Bible, preached the gospel, and preached Christ into every area of life, but he tried to implement this. And after, I don't know, about three years, he got thrown out of his church for being too Bible-centered and too Christ-centered and bringing about holiness in every area of life. But two, three years later, they realized that he was a man of God. They called him back. And they called him back, and this time, he stayed for life. Whatever you do not know from this first portion, can we realize that what Nehemiah was trying to do, fulfill in the person of Jesus and everyone who holds on to God and the things of God, that holiness is not negotiable. God's holiness and the holiness of His people is not up for compromise, is not up for negotiation. That's very important and that runs right through but the people of God, pre-exile and post-exile, had learned to be master compromisers. So when are we going to learn this? That all big sin in your life is a series of small compromises. Every big sin, socially and sexually, is a compromise. Every big sin is actually a built-up from small things. So sometimes you hear, boy, that couple had a blow up. The family had a meltdown. 
they're on the verge of breaking up. It just happened overnight. There is no sudden, the, the family had a blow up, they had a meltdown and all sudden. And here's one conversation. Right? It could go this way. The husband is, is livid from something, he's angry at something with the wife, and he says, everything in my life is secondhand. And by that, he was referring not simply to his job, his, his second-choice job, his living in a second-choice country, and his second-hand wife. Because he knew that before this, she had lost it, lost herself, gave herself fully to someone else. And he always held this against her. All big sin, friends, is a result of small compromises. He never forgave her. Always held this against her. And in a moment of heat, it will come out. You are a second choice wife. Second hand wife. That's how it happens, friends. Every big sin is a series of small compromises in your life and my life. You take that to sexually, right? A click here, a glimpse there longer, a flirtatious message that you send that you shouldn't send you know it's flirtatious because it carries some attraction. But you still send it and you carry on with it. And then in a moment of weakness, you find yourself alone with that person. The Bible highlights anger sins, speech sins, which are social sins and relational sins. The Bible also highlights sexual sins. And all these things don't come about suddenly. They come about by small compromises in your life and my life. And just something along the way. Culture tends to desensitize us to God and His holiness. So I just want to say that we've said this almost once a year, that if you are courting or dating, right, please try distinctively as Christian couples not to go on holidays overseas by yourselves. If you're going for holidays, please go along with your parents. Please go along with some friends. Because the going on holidays together is not great, either as your witness or for your own sexual purity. And then there's a common trend around the world, and Singapore cannot escape the common trend, which is of later and later marriages. And the later marriages for Asian countries and Singapore is, we are looking for financial stability. I want to ask you, in God's eyes, which is more important, your financial stability or your sexual purity? If in arriving at financial security and postponing your marriage to 30, 35 years old, right? but along the way, you have to keep, keep clicking pawn or you keep compromising with with different things while you date, physically and sexually. They are all small compromises. We are telling God that financial security is more important than sexual purity. And that's why it's not a joke in the RPC that there is a higher and higher percentage of our folks who are dating and getting married in their 20s. Because the teaching is sexual purity is the most important thing. If we have to rent, we rent. If the BTO is, is delayed for three to five years, it's delayed. But you can't withhold yourself sexually. And how are you going to deal with that? A little bit of money spent there is more important than losing your virginity. And all those things become important for us to understand. Every single thing that Nehemiah tries to impress upon the people and not so much impose on them that God's holiness must mean for something, must count for something. And so to do this, I confronted the officials. Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So the first people who let down their guard were the officials. And then he gathers the people, verse 12. And verse 13, I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedeah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, and they were considered reliable, and their duty was to dispute 
to their brothers. In all of this, it is impressing upon them the holiness of God. This is not holiness spoken about, as Elder Wing was saying, for half an hour here. The moment you walk out, there is no sense of holiness in your life, whether you are single, married, or single, married, or dating. So holiness is not negotiable. It is applied. And notice, he says this, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And he says this three times in this chapter. And that will be our final thing to think through. What does Nehemiah mean as he brings about this sudden sanctifying and reviving changes to the post-exile generation? And then he goes on. He highlights the next problem. It's about them compromising and desecrating the Sabbath. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on Sabbath day. I want to ask you if I gave you an opportunity to make up the list of your top favourite foods Right? Die, die, this is the final meal you must have before you are taken to glory. What might it be? For a while, the Sunday Times used to run an article every week. If they had a choice of their final meal, it would be what? Uh, I tell you what, uh, your final meal will not have any of this, except for the wine. Lah. Grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. But a Mediterranean person... A Jewish person will look at this and the list goes on. These are their finest things. That is, they will consider this as blessings from God. And see what he says. Verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles. He always realizes that the compromise happens there and said to them, He calls this, whether it is the priest giving the chamber, part of the chamber to Tobiah, or whether it is the Levites being withheld from their provision, or here the Sabbath, what is the evil that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath. But as they do it, they will never recognize it as an evil against God because they are still keeping it superficially. They are still keeping it nominally. Did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us? And on this city, did we not go into exile because we didn't listen to God's word about every area of life and now about the Sabbath? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel. How? By profaning the Sabbath. And so here the dangers for them. This was the fear of missing out. Every day they will see, just before the Sabbath day, all the traders that have come from north, south, east, west, bringing all their goods on display. This is like, I don't know, no, what, what do you call it? Is it called Black Friday here? The big sales? Right? When you see all the things and the, and the sales is 80% off, it's huge sales. And if you don't trade on the one day, will you miss out on all the goods and services at special discount? And slowly but surely, the Israelites become what they see. Faith comes from the hearing of God's word. Fear comes from the seeing of what man does, of what you could be missing out. Faith comes from the hearing of God's word. True faith is looking upon the invisible God and taking part in His promises. I will bring you in the promised land. I will bless you. You cannot bless yourself. But as they look at the pagan idols, and the prosperity of worshipping pagan idols, and they didn't need to keep their Sabbath day. One day less to open your shop, one day less to trade, is a lot of less income. Isn't that true? It's the fear of missing out. And so it's the reverse. Israel was supposed to be a witness to the nations, right? But the nations came to our doorsteps. So they came, we saw what they had, and they conquered us. They conquered us. 
We compromised God and they conquered us with wealth, prosperity. And isn't that it? So, in the early days, I was told, in the 70s, the Korean church was exploding, as it were, with growth because they took God and His Word really seriously. There were pluses and minuses to every revival movement. And part of the revival was, I was told, whether anecdotally, hope that is true, if you walk around a Korean shopping centre or shopping mall in the 1970s, 80s, they will report you to the pastor. Sorry, you didn't get that. Let me say it in slow motion. If you see me in the shopping centre, please forgive me. Is that the right way to be dealing with this? Maybe it's the wrong way to be dealing with this. But you've got to ask yourself, in what ways could you be really weak in this? For the Sabbath day was not a day to do nothing. The Sabbath day was the day to do the most important thing. The Sabbath day was a day to rest and reset their love relationship with God and reset, as a result of that, their love relationship with one another. And part of the resetting is, I dare to stop work. I dare to down my tools. I dare to turn off my phone. I dare to be unavailable, but totally unavailable to my bosses, to my colleagues. I dare to be unavailable to the world and its influences as I'm totally devoted to God. And as I give this day to God, I believe God is not just my Redeemer, God is also my provider and protector. I do not have to embark on FOMO, the fear of missing out. I have to be more serious about the fear of missing out on God. God is their warrior, God is their provider, God will be their protector. And so the rest day was not to do nothing. It was to weakly press the reset button on faith and obedience and the blessedness of that. So I want to ask of you, do you have, as it were, the practice of any day? I'm not about to suggest to you that you need a 24-hour Sabbath day. That would make the application of the freedom we have in Christ. For some of us who are doctors, you may not have a 24-hour day, but you have a night, you give that whole night to God. I do not know what. Anything that recharges your soul, anything that draws you closer, to God. Very important that we do this. And last but not least, he talks about this. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So they could speak the language of other peoples they no longer understood the language of God in which the scriptures were written. And I confronted them. Did you notice? For every compromise, for every sin that they partook in personally and nationally, the, the difficult role of a Christian leader, of a spiritual leader, is confrontation. And whatever you do not pray for me is the ministry of confrontation. It's not easy. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And you ask, why such violent and harsh treatment? For about 12 chapters, Nehemiah had nothing negative about him. By chapter 13, he seems to have lost it. He seems to have lost it. He hasn't lost it. And sometimes in ministry, you have to do this. Right? Do what? Not that he turned angry or he turned violent. He wanted to shake them out of their spiritual and moral complacency. Do you realize that this very attractive woman that you married into, married to, and then this economic and financial security that you got from marrying her, right? All this is abhorrent towards God. And he now speaks of the number one person who did this, King Solomon. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons and for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? So it was not that 
He simply could not keep his pants up. He thought that by this, all these intermarriages, he would strike political, military and economic alliances that will make him more secure. But God always told them, I am your king. I will make you secure. Their plea for kingship was wrong. And so God, and Nehemiah now rehearses, who was Solomon to God? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by God. And God made him king over Israel. But the key word is, that was used in chapter 9, remember? Nevertheless, nevertheless, though they are so chosen and so loved by God, nevertheless, foreign women made him even made even him to sin. So here was the attractiveness. So literally to shake him, to shake them out of the seriousness of their, of their idolatry, seen in their adultery, their physical adultery and their spiritual adultery. We then so we shall then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously? against our God by marrying foreign women. And so, he finishes here and says, Remember me, O God. And this is the third time he says this. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the, good, for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So why does Nehemiah repeat this as part of his God-given mission and ministry? The main themes from Nehemiah, over the last few weeks we have heard this, is returning from exile, rebuilding the physical wall, and more importantly, as they settle in the security of the physical walls under God, is reviving the true love and worship for the true living and loving God of Israel. But they repeat this again and again, which tells you that the ultimate silver bullet, the ultimate cure or panacea for them, is not simply to return, to rebuild. And up to today, from my trip to Israel two, three years ago, they are still waiting for God to return and rebuild through the Messiah for the glory days, when the true Messiah has come 2,000 years ago to demolish the old temple system and to replace it with a whole new temple system with Him as sacrifice, priest and temple all roll into one. So Jesus, by His loving sacrifice and death, brings an end to sin and death and God's wrath upon us. We hear this week after week. Here we go again. If you don't have Jesus, you will go again and again to your self-redemption and your self-salvation and your self-righteousness. But by the grace of God, after you've done enough of that in, repeatedly in your life, you will go to Jesus. And so it was a privilege having the Gettys here and I was speaking to Keith, and he was sharing, you know, one, the most well-known hymn in the world. The number one song in any circle, secular and Christian, put together is? The most well-known hymn, number one song of all time is Amazing Grace. And it was written by John Newton, who was formerly a slave trader, a slave trader who thought that people of a different colour, people of a darker colour, they, they are not human beings. They don't have to be treated with the same equality and dignity till he heard the gospel, met Jesus, and gave his life to Jesus. What a wretched man he was to treat them like animals and worse than animals. Read all the slavery accounts, watch the movies of how they were treated, the slaves. So he writes Amazing Grace. And Keith told me at the time, when John Newton was around, there was another as famous hymn writer, as gifted, or more, more gifted than John, right? And he wrote, 
except that this person had a problem. He could write the most wonderful lyrics to hymns, but he had a drink problem. He was an alcoholic. He would write and go back to drink. He would write and go back to drink. And then he wrote to John Newton, and Newton wrote to him in reply, Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. And that's the song we sing. One of the songs we sang again and again. Our sins are many, and we repeat these many sins in our life against God and against neighbour. And if you try to pretend they are not sinful, you are a liar. You try to pretend it doesn't offend God and harm others, you are spiritually, morally dead. Don't go there again and again. So Mia Cirillo called for help, but help came too late. I so happened to watch last night, so you're getting a better version of the sermon today because one extra illustration. It was just a video posted on CNN. Uh, posted on uh, a swimming pool, right? Condominium. And this young boy just, boom, he jumps in. Doesn't know how to swim, obviously. He's drowning. There are shouts. The neighbor jumps over the fence, pulls him up, gives him CPR. You listen to the, the news conference after that. The boy is actually autistic. The mother was just turned to mind his, his younger sister, changing her nappy or feeding her. Boom, in a moment, he had gone bang into that thing. But thankfully for him, someone was on hand to save him. You go to your self-redemption again and again. There is no one to save you. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus who comes from outside space and time to enter our space and time of repetitive sin, of repetitive pride, of repetitive disobedience to solve it once and for all. And after you believe in Jesus, the mighty presence of the Spirit convicting us and sanctifying us. So endearing gospel lessons from Nehemiah, of Nehemiah, his model was spiritual alertness, watching and praying from chapter 1 right to the end. And that comes to his fulfilment in Jesus, Gethsemane before Calvary. And his motto was, I came, I saw, not I conquered like Julius Caesar, but I cleansed the people of God. Area after area after area. Here are your small compromises leading to big sin, socially, relationally, sexually. And his call and his prayer was, remember me. And what is remember me? To understand it in context, remember me was an appeal to God's love, not self-love. It's a humble call for help. He's not calling for recognition. He's not calling for remembrance as if God forgets, but he's calling for God to intervene. I ask you, O oh God, please intervene. Please strengthen me for this Christian leadership to lead your people that they would not repeat their disobedience and sin against you and learn to justify it by nominal worship. Remember my acts of love. That's what he's saying. And the Hebrew word is hased. And his longing is what Jesus says when he finally comes of true Israel, of which Nehemiah was a standout example, well done, good and faithful servant. If your longing is, no matter what the external opposition, no matter what the internal division, if your longing is, just simply to hear from your Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, in the words of one writer, commentator, is the most innocent and cleansing prayer and cry. And that's why he says again and again, Remember me, O Lord. Again and again, as we had that, we invited guests from different churches, etc. There were many pastors and leaders there, um, our partners from different places. They all came and said, How did you bring the Gettys in? How did you get them in? And we just want to thank you for blessing us. For you not just gave us free tickets, but you gave us free tickets to the best seats in the house. Why did you do this? We thought you would use this concert to raise money for Tengah. We didn't raise a cent for Tengah. Last week, did you notice as we had the service here, a full house? We didn't collect offering. 
because we preach the gospel and we live the gospel. And all these things we do, not because I'm bringing fame to myself or fame to ARPC, there are things that we do and we just want to hear from God, remember me, O God. I tried to do this for the good of your people. And so the Gettys came and it's helping us to take the worship of God seriously in our lives. The Prime Minister has just launched. What has the Prime Minister just launched? Was it yesterday? That 2022 is designated in Singapore as the year of celebrating families. Do you ever read the news? Besides where to go for holiday and where to eat the best foods. And some leaders text me and say, hey, you're focusing a lot, right, on families and marriages. Actually, you wrote it up in the e-version of your handbook. Is the government following you or are you following the government? Of course, it's all in God's sovereignty, right? And this shouldn't be our focus. The focus on, the f on marriages and family. Marriages and families have been under attack for a long time. Since when? Since the Garden of Eden. When the serpent attacked Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Since Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, the first family came under attack. So we must get this seriously and take the singing of hymns and take our devotions in our personal lives and our married lives and our family lives seriously. And that's where we are going. And one or two weeks' time, as we launch the topical series, everything matters. Our youth matter, the elderly matter, the unreached matter, and our families matter. And may we be able to say these things by the grace of God, for the glory of God. God has spoken to us. We must respond to Him. Let's stand and sing this song in thanksgiving for the Word of God and in preparation for the communion. And the communion will always come after the preaching of God's Word because the communion is a reminder of what the Holy God has done to make us the holy people of God through the precious work of Jesus Christ. Amen.